Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, you can open up uh, with me to John chapter uh, 11. There is a, a well-known phrase in the English language that is used to describe someone who shows their emotions rather than hiding them. You may have heard this phrase. He wears his heart on his sleeve. Uh, And the phrase uh, comes from an old uh, custom uh, where uh, a woman uh, would tie her uh, favor uh, to a man's sleeve. And the man would would wear this sign of the lady's favor on his sleeve and that would indicate uh, their affection for one another. Uh, And in 1601, William Shakespeare used uh, the expression in his play Othello. uh, And that uh, brought it into uh, widespread use in the English language and and cultures have uh, differing uh, values when it comes to uh, the appropriate uh, expression of emotions. Uh, some will value uh, expressing your emotions and, and wearing your heart on your sleeve, but others uh, value reservation uh, and caution against uh, the showing of uh, such expressions of emotion. Uh, yet even among uh, certain cultures, there may be uh, differing personalities uh, and uh, uh, some people uh, can't help but uh, wear their emotions. And, and Jane Austen's book, Sense and Sensibility, uh, tells this uh, tale of two sisters, right? One represents sense, uh, a sister who is very uh, quiet and reserved. Uh, and uh, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. Sense is the, woman, the sister who uh, wears all of her emotions on her sleeve and makes quick decisions and speaks her mind and all of these things. And then uh, the other sister, Sensibility, uh, it exercises more self-control of her emotions. Uh, and uh, it's safe to say that in, in a church body and really any large gathering, there are going to be some of us who are uh, more prone to expressing our emotions. And then there's going to be others who may be difficult to even get them to crack a smile. Right. Uh, and uh, the, the typical uh, uh, expressions of emotion in a house are probably more one sided uh, Maybe towards the, uh, the, the feminine uh, side of that, the household and that expression of emotions. And men tend to be more stoic. Some of that goes back to the, the John Wayne uh, cowboy of what masculinity looks like. Uh, but what we should, what we should realize uh, is that biblically speaking, uh, whether we are uh, stoic or whether uh, we are uh, wearing our heart on our sleeve, uh, that we all express uh, the inner workings of our heart uh, in different ways. Uh, And uh, to a certain extent, we are all wearing our hearts on our sleeve, even if we think that we are not. Uh, And as we we come to the end of uh, John chapter 11 uh, here, uh, what we are going to see is the ways in which our our hearts are revealed. As we come to uh, John 11, we're going to be looking at verses 45 to 54 uh, this morning. Uh, And what we're going to be uh, looking at is the way that the religious leaders responded uh, to uh, a miracle that Jesus performed. Uh, a miracle that he performed in Bethany, just about two miles outside of uh, Jerusalem. And there were uh, many Jews from Jerusalem who came uh, to comfort uh, a family that had lost a brother. Uh, these Jewish uh, leaders and many Jews came uh, to comfort Martha and her sister Mary over the, the deaths of their brother Lazarus. Uh, and, uh, and Jesus comes uh, not only to comfort, but he comes to raise Lazarus from the dead. And we saw that uh, last week that, that Jesus uh, raised Lazarus. And this is uh, maybe the most profound miracle that Jesus performed in his earthly ministry. 
If you pick up reading with me, beginning in verse 38 in John 11, we'll, we'll cover what we uh, looked at last week, and then we'll read through verse 54, what we're going to study this week. But verse 38 begins, So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. And Martha, the, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time he smells, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they removed the stone. And then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing around, I said this so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings on his face. And his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the Sanhedrin together and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is doing many signs. And if we let him go on like this, all will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this from himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill Jesus, to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk openly among the Jews, but went away from there to the region near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Let's pause and pray. Father, we, we worship you as the one uh, who reveals himself to us uh, in your written word. And we thank you uh, for what you have written down to us here. And we ask that you would grant us understanding. That you would open our hearts and minds uh, to, to see all that uh, you are communicating to us in this passage. And that you would, would help us not only in, in comprehending it but to be transformed by it. Lord, help us to take your word and to apply it to our lives during this time together so that you might be worshipped and adored and that we might be made into the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
Well, in this passage, we see how the religious leaders are, are responding to the raising of Lazarus, right? The, the Pharisees and the, and the chief priests, when, when word gets back to them that, that Jesus has raised somebody who was dead for four days, now they, they deliberate, and over the course of their uh, conversations, uh, their, their hearts are going to be revealed in a very clear and a very profound way. Now, and their external expressions are going to reveal, they're going to, to show us their internal priorities. And as we study these verses, we're going to see the same uh, is true for every single one of us. If we look carefully at the outside, we can understand what is taking place on the inside. But how are the inner workings of our hearts put on display externally? And as we study the deliberations of the Sanhedrin, we're going to see four ways we unknowingly wear our hearts on our sleeve. But I have to, I have to issue a warning before we, we jump into this. Okay, the contents of this sermon, just like every single sermon, uh, should first and foremost be applied to our own hearts. Okay, what I'm, what I'm going to, to teach this morning and, and kind of pull out from uh, God's Word, uh, this is intent. intended to be uh, a mirror into your own heart, not arrows to shoot at other people. Okay? Uh, We have to be clear there. Uh, And uh, first and foremost, uh, we take inventory of our own heart. uh, And then we will be able to uh, be wise and careful in how we evaluate and judge others. Matthew chapter 7 begins in this way. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. And that's, I think, our world's favorite verse right now. Don't judge others. But the command is not cease from judging. The command is for wise judgment. Listen to verse 2. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take this speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So as we take God's uh, truth, first and foremost, we aim it where? At our hearts. And then we are uh, equipped to wisely and carefully, judiciously, bring it to others. And we must keep in mind uh, that it is very possible uh, to make wrong observations about other people. All right, we've been reading through First uh, Samuel, uh, and in the very first chapter of First Samuel, what did Eli, the priest, think about Hannah? So Hannah's there in the tabernacle, uh, and her, her lips are moving, uh, no sounds are coming out, and Eli makes an observation, he comes to the conclusion. He says, this woman is drunk, uh, when in actuality, what was she doing? She was praying. So so we have to keep in mind that as we make observations about other people, it's very possible that we make inaccurate observations. Okay, And and so we have to be wise and careful uh, in the way that we go about this uh, and understand that we can get get it wrong. Uh, But ultimately, uh, we are called to, to judge. We can't refrain from judgment, but we aim judgment first and foremost at our own hearts. So as we look at the four ways our hearts are revealed, keep that in mind. But this is the first way our hearts are revealed uh, in verses 45 and 46. 
They say that our actions reveal our beliefs. If you look with me again at those verses. It says, therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw that what he had done believed in him. And some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. And so we see two different responses uh, to those who, who witnessed uh, this miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And again, we, in our own minds, we may think, well, if I was there, I immediately would have believed. Like, how, how could you not believe uh, after a man who, uh, who, when he comes out of the tomb, a wave of odor hits you? Right? How, how could you not believe uh, in seeing uh, Lazarus raised from the dead? How could you not believe? Well, there were some who did not believe. Even though they saw, they did not look to Jesus in faith. And we've already seen uh, this pattern of division in John's gospel, that some will believe and some will not. Now, back in John chapter 7, verses 10 through 13, it says, When his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as, as if in secret. And so the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? And there was much grumbling among the crowd concerning him. Some were saying, He's a good man. And others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. And yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Uh, there is always division about who Jesus is. Uh, and here in John 11, when this crowd sees the miracle, many believe, but there is a smaller number, it says some, in contrast to the many, uh, some who immediately go back to Jerusalem and they report to Jesus' opponents, the Pharisees. Uh, and they say, you've you got to hear what Jesus did. And, and they are not coming to the Pharisees in order to persuade them. They, they are coming to report and to give information and to help the Pharisees in taking down Jesus. And what we see here is that the, their actions betray their beliefs. They, even though they witnessed this miracle, there was no miracle that was going to be able to convince them to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, who is their only hope for salvation? No, no matter what would they would be presented with, their hearts were set that they would reject Christ. Uh, and again, this is uh, seen throughout Scripture that uh, our beliefs uh, will make known or are, are made known by our actions. Uh, in the equipping hour, uh, Vincent talked about this, that there's a connection between our beliefs and our behavior. Okay? Uh, and again, this is seen all throughout Scripture. Listen to this parable spoken of uh, by Jesus in Matthew chapter 13. If you want to turn there, uh, you can. Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. So what does this man believe uh, about this pearl that he has found? That it's a, of little worth? No, he's willing to go and sell everything else that he has because this one thing he believes to be more valuable than anything else in life. Now, if you're there in Matthew, you can turn over a couple other pages to another uh, situation in the, in the ministry of Jesus. Matthew chapter 16. Um, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Uh, a, a, a story that you might be familiar with. The rich young ruler. It says, and behold, and someone came to him and said, Teacher, what? Good things shall I do that I may have eternal life. And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And then he said to him, Which ones? 
Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Even though this young man professed faith in God, he professed a desire to pursue and obtain eternal life, what did his actions proclaim? What did he really love and want in life? Yeah, wealth, riches. Uh, and so his actions exposed and revealed his beliefs. Uh, we might profess one thing, but we practice uh, another thing. Uh, and so when, when, there's a, when there's a conflict between those two, which one uh, is more accurate? What we profess or what we practice? The, the, the practice uh, reveals what we really believe. So I would ask this, what do your actions, both public and private, Reveal about what you truly believe in life. Also, would there be continuity between your actions, uh, public and private? Uh, are you one way in public and another way in private? Uh, and again, which one is going to be uh, the true you in that sense? Not the public one, but the, the private one. It's been said that who we are on our knees before God... That is truly and genuinely who we are. We can't hide anything there. We can hide it in front of other people, but our actions will always betray our beliefs. Do your actions reveal that you trust and rely upon Christ wholly and completely? Or that you trust and rely in something else other than Christ? Do your actions betray uh, that something else is of greater worth to you? Is Jesus that pearl of great value that you're willing to sell everything else for because he is of infinite worth? If you really believe that, your actions will support it. And if you believe something else, your actions will reveal what you believe. This is the first way our hearts are revealed here. There's a second way in verses 47 and 48. We can say that our fears... Reveal our idols. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the Sanhedrin together and they were saying, what are we doing? For this man is doing many signs. And if we let him go on like this, all will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, during Jesus's earthly ministry, his, his primary opponents, the ones that he was always uh, at odds with, were the Pharisees. And kind of understanding a little bit of the Jewish culture at this point in time, the, the, the Pharisees were the ones who were the teachers in the synagogues throughout the land of Israel. Uh, they were the ones who were the, the, the teachers, so-called the, the pastors uh, of uh, the Israelites throughout the land. Uh, they were the, the keepers of uh, the law, the scribes and the teachers, uh, and who they kept the law and they copied the law and they taught the people. Or at least that was what they were supposed to do. Uh, but, but when Jesus comes and enters into world history, the Pharisees ha- were no longer teaching the word of God. They were actually teaching their tradition. 
they weren't uh, teaching from the Old Testament. They were teaching from the commentary, the rabbinic commentary on the Old Testament, and sometimes even teaching on the, the commentary of the commentary. Uh, so there's layers removed from God's Word, and that's what they were teaching the people. And that's where Jesus' evaluation of them is you actually don't know God's Word. And you are elevating the, the traditions of men over what God has taught. And so even though the Pharisees were the primary opponents of Jesus during his ministry, it was the chief priests that we see here who were primarily Sadducees who were responsible for the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus. And the Sadducees, the chief priests, they were the priestly class, but they were also the political leaders of Israel. Uh, and while uh, in the Old Testament it was intended for uh, the line of priests to be descended from a, a specific individual, Aaron, uh, and the, the priest would be in his line, uh, well, during the, the times of the Romans and during uh, other times where uh, Gentile governments ruled over Israel, uh, the position of high priest was really more of a political position. Uh, and uh, the, the Roman governor would appoint a high priest that he could work with. Uh, and he would do his bidding in leading the Jews. But here what we have to, is the chief priests uh, and uh, the Pharisees, the synagogue teachers, uh, who make up the, the Sanhedrin, which is a body of, of 70 men who was kind of the singular governmental body in uh, the land of Israel under Roman authority. Uh, but it was the, uh, the judicial, the legislative, and the executive branch all rolled into one. So what we see here is there is an emergency government meeting in response to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. News comes back to the Pharisees and like, we have to meet. We need an emergency session because we have to talk about this right now. And they ask this, this question at the beginning, what are we doing? Uh, the idea of what is it we are accomplishing and you can answer that really, and you're not doing much. You're not doing much of anything. Uh, and meanwhile, they're not doing much. And what is Jesus doing? Many miracles. What are we doing? Nothing. But Jesus is doing all of these miracles. And the net effect is more and more people are looking to Jesus in faith. More and more people are seeing what he is doing and hearing the words that he is proclaiming. And they are believing in him and beginning to follow him. And this, this is what the religious leaders are fearing. You look at the second half, or really all of verse 48, you see what they are afraid of. If we let him go on like this, all will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They say, if everybody believes in Jesus as the Messiah, uh, the, the people are going to, to revolt against Rome. That, that was the, the hope and the dream of Israel as a nation, that when the Messiah comes, they will finally be done with the Romans, who have been ruling over them for some time. And the, the religious and political leaders gather together and say, if everybody believes in Jesus, they're going to revolt against Rome, and then what's going to happen? The Romans are going to come and they're going to take away our place, probably speaking about the, the temple, and they're going to take away our nation. And these fears that they express here in verse 48 
are revealing the idols that they have set up within their hearts. Revealing what is most important to them. There, there is always a connection between uh, what we fear and what we worship. And we are afraid of losing the things that we care most about. Just think about what we have been reading through in uh, the book of First Samuel. It's amazing how the fear of man comes to the forefront uh, over and over and over again. Uh, in First uh, Samuel chapter 15, uh, King Saul had been, had been given instructions uh, on how to deal with uh, the Amalekites. Uh, but he, he disobeyed God. And he didn't do what he was supposed to do. And when he's confronted by the prophet Samuel, uh, he says, hey, it, it's better to obey than to just offer sacrifice. God doesn't care uh, how many outward expressions you are giving to him if you are not obeying what he's actually written and what he's actually commanded you to do. And listen to what Saul says when, when he finally sees, uh, after Samuel speaks to him, he sees clearly what he did. He said that he sinned against the Lord because, he says, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, Ed Welch, a biblical counselor, writes this in one of his books. When you fear something, you are controlled by it. If you fear people, you are controlled by people. It's as if the opinions of other people are a threat to you, and you are always looking for ways to ward off their life-threatening rejection. So biblically speaking, fearing people is worshiping people. This is why the most often repeated command in the entire Bible is, do not fear. Don't be afraid of people. Don't be afraid of circumstances rather than choosing to be afraid of people and circumstances what were we called to do to have faith in god to trust in him additionally we are told the beginning of knowledge the beginning of wisdom is what the fear of the lord so uh, here we have uh do not fear and yet also fear why are we called to fear the lord because fear is connected with worship we fear the Lord, we are going to be worshiping Him. And when these political and religious leaders fear losing their place in the nation, right? If the, if the temple is destroyed and, and the, the nation is taken away, what, what does that mean for these leaders? Who are they leaders of at that point? Nobody. What they value most, they're not really concerned about the nation. They're concerned about themselves. Their position of power in society. Their idols have been revealed by what they fear. What is it that you are afraid of losing? It's a worthwhile question. Your health? Your money? Your constitutional rights, your job, your children, your spouse. But, but how can those be idols? Those are good things, right? No, we are guilty of idolatry even when we turn good things into ultimate things. Take God's good gift and t- place it over God himself. This is what I'm now living for. This is what I'm now bowing down to. 
Paul Tripp puts it this way, idolatry is not just when a religious God replaces the one true God. And it is not just when your heart is ruled by an evil thing. It is most fun, in its most fundamental everyday form, idolatry is when good things are out of balance in our hearts. Idolatry is when things take on a greater weight in our hearts than God does. So in that sense, our fears are a big warning light. Right? If we, if we look in the mirror uh, of, our, of God's Word and see our heart and we see what we are fearing, we, we are shown what we are also idolizing. Shows us what has become the top priority. And again, what, what's the remedy when we look into our hearts and we examine our lives and we see something other than God is being idolized there? Fear not and fear God. Turn your fear to be directed towards the one true God who deserves all of your reverence, all of your worship. Begin to look to Him in faith. Understanding that those idols are never going to satisfy. They're never going to be the solution to your problems. Fear God and do not fear people and circumstances. But what is driving the religious leaders here is a fear of losing their power and their position. Our actions reveal our beliefs. Our fears reveal our idols. Thirdly, verses 49 to 50, our sacrifices reveal our worship. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, and that, then, and that the whole nation not perish. What Caiaphas is, is going to, to say here, uh, as the high priest, he was high priest for, for 18 years, not just this one singular year, but uh, the idea is that he's the high priest during this very fateful time, this fateful year in which Jesus is going to be arrested and crucified. Caiaphas speaks to his, uh, the members of the Sanhedrin in a very disrespectful way. He says, you know absolutely nothing. And he offers up a solution. And the idea is that they should sacrifice Jesus to the Romans. And Jesus can be the scapegoat. Say, hey, if Jesus dies... We won't have any trouble with the Romans. And then guess what? The nation gets to survive. But again, their main goal is not the survival of the nation. It's the survival of their idols. That's what they value most. And Caiaphas, well, he is willing to sacrifice Jesus in order to keep his idols. And our idols become really, really obvious uh, when we are willing to sin in order to get them or in order to keep them. Right? But what are you willing to uh, lie, cheat, and steal to obtain or to keep? That so you find those idols in your heart, in your life. Stuart Scott says, We worship that which we serve, speak about, sacrifice for, seek after, and spend money on. Right, right now, the Olympics are going on. Uh, we have these uh, world-class athletes. What, what have they sacrificed in order to, uh, to get to the top of their profession or their athletic ability? They've sacrificed probably lots of carbs, right? Uh, they've sac- made sacrifices in their, their diet. They probably sacrificed lots of sleep 
right? When you and I are, are sleeping in until like 6.30, uh, they've probably been up for a couple of hours working and, and laboring. You know, they, they sacrifice uh, many things and their, their leisure time, sacrifices that you and I are not really willing to make. They make sacrifices in order to attain their goals. Those who, who worship and idolize success in their careers, they're also willing to make sacrifices, right? We, if we idolize uh, and worship success in our careers, what are we probably going to sacrifice? Time at home. We are willing to sacrifice our family time in order to achieve something else. Those who are addicted to alcohol are usually willing to sacrifice human relationships uh, to, uh, to pursue their idol, to p- pursue their own solution to life's problems. Because it creates a whole lot of conflict when they pursue that idol. And think about what Caiaphas is willing to sacrifice here in, in order to keep his idols of power and position. He's willing to sacrifice Jesus. And that is the nature of many idols. They, they require us not just to make self-sacrifices, but they require us to sacrifice others on the altar of our idols. If we're going to maintain an idol, we're going to have to make some sacrifices. And in such cases, the pain of our idolatry sometimes falls more upon others than it even does upon ourselves. But compare this with a right view of worship that we're going to see when we reach the end of of 2 Samuel. It's going to be a a moment in time where uh, David is going to have the opportunity to purchase the land on which the temple is eventually going to be built. Uh, And the owner of that land says, I'll just give it to you. I'll give you the land, David. And this is David's response. However, the king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. David says, it's not going to be worship. If, it's, if it costs me nothing, what am I sacrificing? Well, what am I giving to God if it if it's costs me absolutely nothing? And that's what, that's what Caiaphas is saying here. He's willing to sacrifice someone else to keep what he wants and values most. David understood that he was not truly worshiping God if he was offering up something of no value. But proper worship always involves sacrifice of our time, talents, and treasure. Worship is costly. That's that's the nature of it. And yet we are all too often unwilling to make any sacrifices for God. We are all too often like Caiaphas. We are willing to to sacrifice Jesus so that we may keep our idols, the things that we value most in life. All too willing to, to cut Jesus out. One pastor has used the illustration that we are all too willing to give God our leftovers, right? Now, we don't want to give him the, the main meal, first priority, but we give him the leftovers. Anyone, anyone really love leftovers during the week? Some people, yeah. Sometimes it, the meal is better the second time. If kind of, all all the, the juices sink in. But, but that's not the way that it works with our worship. Okay? We have to be convinced of that. Does God want our leftovers? Or does he want our best? Which one costs us? Do leftovers cost us? No. Yet that's what we are all too often uh, tempted to give to God. And here's one, one small application to, to take away. Begin to see scheduling conflicts as worship decisions. 
when another activity conflicts with your devotional time, right? Uh, when Netflix in the evening is going to impact your, your time with the Lord in the morning, you have a decision to make, right? But Netflix just kicks over to that next episode, right? And you make a choice. You stay up late, and then what happens? And then God kind of gets wiped away. So I'll, I'll figure out when I can get, give God my leftovers. See uh, scheduling conflicts and every single decision that you make as a worship decision. Here's another small application. When another activity or event conflicts with church or growth group, which one do you sacrifice? I'm not saying if you miss one Sunday or miss one Tuesday night or whatever it may be, but if on a, on a regular habitual basis you are sacrificing time of worship and fellowship in favor of other things, that something is being revealed there. Okay, not a one-time thing, but if there is a, if there is a pattern, that means something. We have to keep these truths in mind. Our actions reveal our beliefs, our fears reveal our idols, our sacrifices reveal our worship. And then fourthly, if you skip ahead to verse 53, our determinations reveal our destiny. It says, so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. And therefore, Jesus no longer continued uh, to walk openly among the Jews, but went away from there to the region near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, where he stayed with the disciples. And after, after hearing Caiaphas' uh, solution to their problem, uh, they made a determination. They came to a conclusion. It says they planned to kill him. And the idea is more that they, uh, they reached a conclusion merely than just they were making a plan. No, they, they came to a decision and agreed upon conclusion, and their conclusion was this, that Jesus had to die. If they were going to maintain their position, if they were going to maintain their power, if they were going to, uh, if their idols would survive, Jesus was going to have to die. It's quite a determination. Usually in a, in a legal case, the defendant uh, is presumed uh, to be innocent uh, until proven guilty, right? And then at the end of the trial, they reach a verdict about guilt or uh, not guilt. But in this instance, the verdict concerning Jesus has already been reached by the Jewish government. Again, remember, this is uh, judicial, legislative, and executive branches all rolled into one. And what conclusion have they come to? Jesus hasn't even been arrested yet, and they've already issued the verdict. And they have determined that it is politically expedient for Jesus to die. And that's, that's what Caiaphas said back in uh, verse 50. Right? It is better for you, and it's a, a plural you there. It's better for y'all. It is uh, profitable for y'all if one person dies so that the nation may live. J.C. Ryle uh, says this, Let us carefully note here what crimes and sins uh, be committed on the ground of expediency. And none are so likely to be tempted to commit such sins as rulers and governors. None are so likely to do things unjust, dishonest, and oppressive as a government under the pressure of the spurious argument that it is expedient that the few should suffer rather than the many should take harm. For political expediency, Christ was crucified. What a fact that is. Ought we not rather to ask always what is just, 
what is right, what is honorable in the sight of God. That which is morally wrong can never be politically right, and to govern only for the sake of pleasing and benefiting the majority without any reference to the eternal principles of justice, right, and mercy may be expedient, and it may please man, but it does not please God. The Sanhedrin set their hearts to kill Jesus. They issued this verdict even before the trial begins. And ultimately, our determination about who Jesus is reveals our destiny, reveals where we are headed. For all of those who look to Jesus in faith as the Son of God, who lived and died for sinners, who rose again on the third day, if you look to Him in faith and trust in Him, it says that we will be with Him for eternity. You make that determination. But if you determine not to look to Jesus in faith, if you, if you make the determination to reject Christ, then we, we remain in our standing of rebellion against a holy God. Back at John chapter 3, verse 36, it says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And we have a determination to make, and that determination is going to reveal where our destiny lies. So we've seen these four ways that our hearts are revealed here in this passage. Our actions reveal our beliefs, our fears reveal our idols, our sacrifices reveal our worship, and our determination about Jesus reveals our destiny. And yet there's still something else to, to keep in mind that we must not overlook. If you go back to verses 51 and 52. We see that God uses all things for His glory. What we see here in verses 51 and 52 is the Apostle John explaining and commenting on the, the, the prophecy and the words of Caiaphas. It says, Now he did not say this from himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into, the one, into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So, on the one hand, Caiaphas, as the high priest, is speaking with political intentions. This is what is best for them politically, but God is actually going to use his words, not merely politically, but also prophetically. This is, Jesus is going to die for the nation, but he's, he's going to die, and it's not just going to be to appease the Romans and to keep Israel's place. Uh, Jesus is going to die, not to appease the Romans, but to appease God. He's going to be the sacrificial lamb who's going to take away the sins of the whole world. And in so doing, he's going to unite Jew and Gentile in the church. This is what Jesus hinted to back in John chapter 10 when he spoke of, uh, He has sheep which are not of this fold, but he will make them into one uh, flock with one shepherd. Caiaphas spoke prophetically. He had the wrong kind of sacrifice in mind. But God uses this unbelieving high priest to speak truth and to speak prophetically. Right? And, and an additional layer of irony, uh, the, the Jews who acted in, in fear to try and maintain their place and their nation so the Romans wouldn't come and take it away, guess what happens in A.D. 70? The future Roman emperor Titus comes and he tears Jerusalem down. He tears the temple down stone by stone. It's amazing how what you fear and you begin to operate on 
So often when you act in fear, you get exactly what you were hoping not to get. Your fear becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Ultimately, what we see is that God is able to use all things together for his glory and for our good. To quote J.C. Ryle again, he says, God can make the designs of his enemies work together for the good of his people and cause the wrath of man to praise him. In days of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, believers may rest patiently in the Lord and the very things that at one time seem likely to hurt them shall prove in the end to be for their gain. And we have to keep that in mind. That that the plans of men are going to reveal uh, what is taking place in their hearts. Uh, But the plans of men are never ever going to overrule the plan and the purpose of God. Amen? And we have to rest assured in that. We can look at the plans and the purposes of men. First and foremost, ourselves and see what those plans and what those purposes, what those decisions reveal about us. We examine our own hearts and see, what am I worshiping rather than worshiping God? What am I afraid of losing? What what is my uh, external actions, my external decisions, what is that revealing about my inner man? We see that on display here. And then ultimately we rest in knowing that God is sovereign. That He is able to work. That our plans uh, are going to be used by Him. Again, that no, no human leader is going to be able to accomplish their plan and their purposes against Almighty God. Back in the late 1800s, uh, there was a missionary who was going to Constantinople. His name was William uh, Schaffler. And while he was there, he was warned by the, the Russian ambassador. He says, the, the, uh, the, the Tsar for whom I speak, my imperial master, will never allow Protestantism to set foot in Turkey. And the missionary answers calmly. He says, well, the kingdom of Christ, who is my master, will never ask the emperor of Russia for permission where uh, the church of Christ may set its foot. We have to understand that. Let us take heed to examine our hearts, to examine our lives, to see what is revealed about our inner lives. And then also may we entrust ourselves to the God who knows our hearts perfectly. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come to you knowing that you are the sovereign one. Knowing that you are able to see the depths of our hearts knowing that your word is able to give us insight into our own hearts and our own souls we'd ask that you would use what you have taught us and what you have proclaimed in your word this morning to see ourselves clearly even as you would see us father we are so thankful that even though you see all the depths of our sin all of the ugliness all of the idols within our heart you are aware of, and yet you have still sent your Son to live and die for us. Lord, draw us to yourself through him. Grant us faith, uh, and help us to align our actions and our beliefs. Help us to fear first and only you. Help us to be willing to make the right sacrifices to you. Sacrifices that are dearly and costly to us and that demonstrate a heart of worship to you rather than a worship of someone or something else. And may we be determined to follow Jesus faithfully, trusting only in him. Grow us, teach us, 
Help us to live for your glory, honor, and praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand as we finish with wonderful, merciful Savior. We are finished. We have 10 minutes till baptisms. So you got
Ten minutes to go get your kids. Ready? Go. <laughs> Baptisms, uh, an unnamed preacher went late, uh, but uh, we'll start at 55 rather than at 50. All right. Yeah, let's do it.
field and then standing room uh, behind that. Uh, but uh, this is a, a wonderful and joyous celebration of what the Lord has done in the lives of these four individuals who are about to be baptized. And we have uh, seen uh, the power of the gospel uh, on display in the lives of Nicola, Jessica, T, and David. Uh, and they have each uh, professed uh, faith in Christ and understanding of the gospel, uh, and they have demonstrated that with a, a changed life. And you get to, to hear their testimonies in a moment, uh, but I'd love to, to pray once more uh, to begin uh, these baptisms. Heavenly Father, you are the Lord of hosts, uh, and we uh, are amazed uh, to, to know and to realize that those hosts of angels, you, you tell us in your word that they are so intrigued by salvation. They are so intrigued by the gospel. There is no redemption for them, but you have sent your Son to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life as a man in order to redeem us as human beings. And we are so amazed and so humbled by the truth of the gospel. We pray that, that this time would be a time when you are praised and worshipped as the one who saves. We lift up those who are about to go through the waters of baptism. Lord, that you would bless and guide them. Lord, that this would just be uh, the beginning of a long and faithful walk with you. And as we hear their testimonies of faith in Christ and witness their baptisms, Father, may you help us to reflect upon our own salvation. Help us to reflect upon all that you have done in our own lives. And that we would continually offer up to you praise and thanksgiving for uniting us in Christ. Uniting us with your son in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. We celebrate that. We are so thankful for that. And we pray uh, in the name of the one that we are united to, Christ Jesus, your son. Amen. Well, there are, are two ordinances that the Lord has uh, given to his church, and they are intended to mark out who is a part of the church. The first ordinance is baptism. Uh, and baptism is in and of itself a picture of uh, our identification with Jesus in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. Uh, and the second ordinance is the Lord's table. Uh, and that's the, the family meal. If baptism is walking through the, the front door into the Christian house, uh, then uh, the Lord's table, uh, the Lord's supper is the family meal where we get to regularly uh, rejoice in how we have been saved and rescued in Jesus. Uh, and uh, Romans uh, 6 verses 3 through 5 uh, describe and uh, give a, a, provide the deeper meaning of baptism. That baptism is uh, in and of itself, uh, it does not save anyone. Uh, it is intended to be a, a spiritual or a, a physical picture, a physical illustration of what has already taken place in the lives of these individuals. That they, uh, and to use the words of uh, Romans chapter 6 verses 3 through 5, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. Amen? Those who are being baptized, they don't stay under the water. They don't stay dead. They're raised to newness of life. Uh, And additionally, we gather here to bear witness because when someone is baptized, they are baptized into the church. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And so we are welcoming uh, these who are being baptized into uh, fellowship. They are being baptized into the corporate body of believers. That is uh, the church universal. Uh, The church that began on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts and will continue until uh, Christ Jesus comes again. And before each of these baptisms, what we're going to to get to hear is a brief testimony of how the Lord has worked uh, to save each of them. uh, And then we'll baptize each of them one by one. But I would love to invite Nicola uh, to come up first uh, and to uh, get to uh, share her testimony of how she has come to faith in Christ. I think it's working. Oh, there it is. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, first of all, I want to say that I'm deeply humbled to be able to stand up here and declare what I'm about to declare to you. I grew up in a family that prayed at dinner time and regularly, regularly attended church on Sunday. My mom was Catholic, and my dad was Baptist. I attended Catholic school, but I really only learned about Jesus and who he is at our Baptist church. We moved when I was 11, and from what I remember, that was the end of our church days. As a teenager, I did not recognize my selfish, defiant, and rebellious nature as sin. That just wasn't a term that I was familiar with. Looking back, I can clearly see the lies that the enemy was feeding me, and I bought into them. However, I can also see how God was protecting me in ways I never knew until he changed me. Part of that plan included having me become the nanny for a Christian family. The mom began to boldly speak truth into my life, and I felt offended at times. She bought me my first study Bible, and I still use it today. God began a work in my heart that was completely unexpected. I didn't have an immediate understanding of the gospel, but my heart began to change. I was more aware of my sin and did not like it, but it was more just a prick of the conscience than a realization of my nature as a sinner. As a young and new mom, God continued to work in my heart, He gave me this intense desire to beg him nightly that my baby daughter would grow up to desire him and be his servant. Those were my exact words. 
Dad and I started regularly attending church, similar to the one I attended when I was young. God placed a neighbor in my life that told me about Bible Study Fellowship International. And I began attending almost immediately. God began to open my eyes to his truth in the Bible. I began to see that the church we were attending was teaching things that were different than what was I was learning in the Bible. It took four years, but eventually Brad and I made the decision to leave that faith, and we pulled our oldest daughter, Megan, out of the school that was connected to that church and placed her in a school that taught the Bible in the way we now knew it should be. When Megan went to the Master's College in 2013... Megan was taught the correct gospel message, and she began to share it with me. I understood for the first time that since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, we all are born with a sin nature, and each of us have chosen to rebel against our Creator. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. We are in desperate need of a Savior. Without God's intervention, we are all destined for an eternity in hell. That is the bad news taught in scripture. The good news is that God's love for mankind is so deep that he provided a way for man not to spend an eternity in hell separate from him. Our heavenly father has provided a bridge for us to cross in his son, Jesus. When the father sent his son, Jesus, into the world, Jesus took on flesh and lived a life of perfect obedience to his father, which qualified him to pay the penalty for each of my wicked thoughts and sinful deeds on the cross. Jesus experienced the wrath of his father for me so that I could be with my father in heaven. He gave me mercy when I deserved punishment. There was nothing I could do to get myself into heaven. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Megan pushed me to answer hard questions like, Do you think you're going to heaven? And why? These were hard questions to be asked from the one I was supposed to have taught about Jesus. The Lord had to break down my pride for a while, but he was patient and continued to teach my daughter, who then taught me. When she met her husband, Tom, the Lord worked through him to help us have an even deeper understanding of his word. Tom counseled us through the book of Acts, which gave us the tools of what to look for in a church. We eventually ended up here in Ambassadors. I cannot pinpoint the exact moment when I believed that Jesus alone could forgive my sin and I entrusted my life to him to save me. I have seen God's consistent and faithful work in my life for so many years. He gradually opened my eyes to see his truth over time and when I was ready. I am still a a sinner and I am keenly aware of my sin as I never was before. Instead of making excuses for my sin, it now burdens me. I have an understanding that all I can do for my sin is take it to the one who created me 
and graciously changed me. Humbled and broken, I can now repent of my sins to God and also to those I sin against. This is huge. Because of the gospel, I am now able to humble myself and ask forgiveness from the people I have sinned against. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. Prior to Jesus changing my heart, I was not capable of loving him or anyone else. Through his indwelling spirit, I can now bear the fruit of a believer, although not perfectly, as God is continually at work in me. I have a desire and an interest to study his word. I feel a strong connection to his people and church. I now feel like an alien in this world, and I recognize that this is not my home. I have the ability to see the good that God is doing in difficult situations, and I can praise him for that growth. One of the biggest changes has been the ability to pray for and love my enemies. That is, without a doubt, supernatural. These are just a few examples of the change Christ made in me, for which he deserves all of the credit and the glory. I was baptized at eight years old, but at that time, I did not understand what baptism meant. Unfortunately, no one inquired at that time if I was truly committed to Christ, and no one evaluated my life to see that I was demonstrating the marks of a true believer. Today, I want to publicly declare before all of you that I know without any doubt that I am a child of God because he has transformed my life. I know that Jesus is my Savior and that he has forgiven all my sins. I am committed to serve and obey him for the rest of my life as my Lord and my King. The people that knew me before will attest that I am a completely changed person. The changes to the desires and convictions of my heart can only come from a supernatural spirit living within me. I praise God for the privilege of that witness. In my life, I understand that baptism is not how I get to heaven, but an outward declaration of an inward transformation. I do this out of obedience and to give glory to the one who saved me from an eternity in hell. Amen. Perfect. Thank you for your wonderful testimony, Nicola, and your courage to stand today, being willing to humble yourself today uh, to, to take this step of faith. Just want to ask you a few questions before I baptize you. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Do you believe that He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins yes. and that He rose from the dead uh, to break the power of sin and death? Yes. And have you placed your faith in Jesus alone as your Savior? And is He the one that you want to serve as your Lord? Yes. On behalf of your profession of faith, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Jessica. Very humbled and blessed to be up here, and I'm going to try to make it through the whole thing without crying through the whole thing. So, my life before Christ was anything but conventional. It was filled with a lot of chaos and sin. I was extremely lost. I knew that I believed in God, but I didn't know how to add that to my life. I grew up Catholic and attended Catholic school from kindergarten through 10th grade. Unfortunately, I was not taught how to read and study the Bible on my own, and I did not learn Christ's most important teaching on how to become saved through the message of the gospel. I was handed religion books that taught what the Catholic faith wanted me to know and believe. To be honest, I don't remember much about God from my early years in church and in school. All I knew was that I had good works to do in order to gain entrance into heaven. Because of the sinful choices I was making in my life, I knew firsthand that the good works that I was taught to perform to experience forgiveness was not helping to remove the overwhelming guilt I experienced. Before, I didn't know where my meaning and purpose came from. I also chose to find my worth in people and men, not God. When I began to reap the consequences of my sinful choices, I began to feel discouraged and depressed. Unfortunately, I sought answers in secular therapy, a lot of antidepressants, and the gospel of pursuing myself, pursuing more self-esteem that eventually led me down the road of starving myself and then binge eating. Since I was looking for salvation in food and in loving myself enough, I began to think that I was the problem and that I was broken beyond repair. I even questioned my secular therapist as to why loving myself more was so hard for me to experience when the concept seemed so easy. Along the journey, I came to know Katrina McHadden. I was one of her clients when she was doing hair. I gave her the task of her life. I came in with blue hair and wanted her to dye it back to my natural color. <laughs> I'm really sorry. Even though she's not here, I'm very sorry for that. <laughs> We spent five to six hours fixing my hair, and now looking back, the Lord placed her in my life for a reason, which is what God does with everyone who comes into our life. We talked about religion, politics, and our different beliefs, and even though I had very strong opinions on religion, feminism, etc., we showed respect for each other. Don't get me wrong, I thought her beliefs and way of living were super weird. <laughs> but I couldn't help but love the way she talked about her faith and her love for Jesus. It would be almost two years before I reached out to her again. I pled for her to help me. The previous weekend, I'd been partying and making unwise choices. On my way home, I felt so empty and lost. I was stuck in my various patterns of self-destruction. I happened to come home to a book I had ordered called You Are Not Enough and That's Okay by Allie B. Stuckey. This ended up not just being another interesting book to read. It provided the answer to my heart's greatest longings. All this searching for why I felt unworthy or why I couldn't conjure up enough self-esteem and joy, I discovered that it was because I was looking for it in the world and not in the person of Jesus. That was the night the Lord spoke to my heart, and I wept with tears of joy and peace. I finally understood. I reached out to Katrina that night. She called me the next day, and we just talked for over an hour. She invited me to ambassador, and I was welcomed. I had never been a part of a community like this before where people genuinely cared about me and my walk with the Lord. Jesus had become not only my Savior, but my Lord. He is who I worship now, not man, but God. 
don't get me wrong, in this world where we idolize and worship the comfort of our phones, social media, relationships, it's difficult to consistently serve and worship Christ. It's comforting to know that the Lord has found me, and he has given me the faith to respond to his offer of salvation, especially when I struggle to believe that God could forgive all the past sins and my present struggles. Growing up Catholic, I was educated well on how to confess, but not to how to repent. When Pastor Bruce informed me that there was a difference, my mind was blown. Repentance is not just the remorse I feel for my sins when I confess them to the Lord. It's more than that. Repentance is a commitment to turn away from my sin and to turn back to God. It means to flee, flee and to abstain from the, from the sin, each sin. I have not been perfect in all that. I still slip and fall, but I have learned that I am at my weakest. The Lord wants me to run to him and, my struggles at his, and lay my struggles at his feet. This is what Jesus said to the Apostle Paul when Paul asked Jesus to remove a thorn in his flesh. My grace is sufficient for you, for the power is perfected in weakness. Paul made the following statement in response to Jesus, words of encouragement. Most gladly, therefore, I will, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with the weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. The Lord has changed my heart in more ways than I could have imagined. My heart attitude toward other people is softer. I still do have my sassy days. But with new perspective about people and the world, I know that Jesus can change the hearts and attitudes of others. No amount of secular therapy or antidepressants could have cured my sadness, my anger, or my insecurity. After 16 years of antidepressants, I no longer need them because of Christ. I have found meaning, purpose, contentment, peace, and joy in him. He helped me to walk away from those friendships that tempted to dishonor Christ. My current lifestyle is what my worldly friends would call boring and being an old lady. <laughs> How I speak about life, people, situations is a lot more loving. I do have my moments, but the Lord has been teaching me to be slow to speak and quick to listen. For those who don't know Christ, who feel immensely alone and lost like I did, I would urge you to consider him. So many times, especially in today's world, we try to every method to cure our loneliness, depression, and emptiness, that we forget that Jesus alone is the answer to these struggles. Trusting yourself, believing in yourself, making yourself your own God will only lead to more pain and anxiety. Repent from making yourself your own God. Trust that God is and will always be enough. For believers who know God, I encourage you to keep praying and reaching out to the lost. You never know what God's truth spoken you never know how God's truth spoken by you will impact others. I know that God used Katrina in my life when I thought I was too far gone and beyond his reach. For that I am eternally grateful. Well, this is an exciting day. We've been working on this day for about three months. <laughs> Jessica, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Do you believe that He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin? Yes. And that he rose from the dead and broke the power of death. Yes. And do you have you placed Jesus as 
your Savior and your Lord? Is He the only one that you're placing trust in to stay? Well, on that profession of faith, it's my joy and my pleasure to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Wonderful. Yeah, perfect. Luke 18:11. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. In the same way that the Jews believed their heritage, law, and circum- circumcision saved them, I believed growing up in the church, my good morals and my family saved me. I was raised in the church, served in the church, and like a Pharisee, abstained from the world. I liked the thought that Jesus, I, loved, I liked the thought of Jesus, but rejected the notion that I was truly a sinner in need of a savior. After all, I was a good person. As long as I was not sexually immoral, drunk, or addicted to drugs, I was righteous before God. I believe Jesus died for me because he loved my good heart, not because I was a wretched sinner like the rest of the world. Though I was born into the church, it did not mean I was born again into the kingdom of God. Romans 3:23 through 24 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. As I grew older and the sin of my sin... The, sin, the guilt of my sins compounded. I realized my outward morality could not overcome the guilt in my heart. I became all the more anxious, prideful, religious. And even though I had questions about my salvation, I was still trusting in my own righteousness. But my guilt became, began to overwhelm my thoughts no matter what I did. I lived in fear because I was realizing that I was not reconciled to God and could not escape his judgment. By the grace of God, I began to understand the gospel, that I needed to be saved from the penalty of my sins. My heart was evil, my works were worthless, and I needed forgiveness. I realized growing up in the church, my good morals and family could not save me, only the death of Jesus on the cross. I put my faith in Jesus, the Son of God, as my Lord and Savior. The burden of my sins was lifted because of his life, his death, and his resurrection. Philippians 3, 7 through 9 says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. By his grace, I no longer rely on my good works or morals, but put my faith and trust in Christ Jesus, my Lord. I no longer rely on a righteousness of my own, but in the righteousness imputed to me by Christ. I know the church doesn't save me, but I desire to be part of the body of Christ. I desire to obey Jesus out of love and not obligation. 
I am no longer fearful concerning my salvation because salvation belongs to the Lord, and I know he is faithful to keep his word and promises. I preach the gospel to my... Sorry. I preach the gospel. Sorry, I got need tissue. I preach the gospel to my children, and I will not assume because they are growing up in a Christian household that they are born into the kingdom of God. I know that they must put their faith in Jesus. I now view myself not as the Pharisee, but as a tax collector in Luke 18:13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, "God, be merciful to me, a sinner." through. I have some questions for you, T. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that he lived and died to pay the penalty for your sins? And do you now place all of your faith, all of your trust in him alone for your salvation? Based upon your profession of faith, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Romans six, fifteen through 16. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? I grew up in the church I was a pastor's kid, went to a Christian school and surrounded myself with those who profess Christ. I had extensive knowledge of the Word of God, and if you had asked me, I would have said, I believed Jesus died for my sins and rose to life on the third day. Yet my heart had another master. Sin reigned and ruled in my body as I always obeyed its lust and desires. Though externally I professed Christ and knew all the right answers, I was a slave of sin and not a slave of righteousness. I wanted Jesus as my Savior, but I did not know Him as Lord. After continuing in the same pattern of sin, addiction, greed, idolatry, there was a realization that I did not understand true repentance and faith in Christ. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. My life consisted of worldly grief, for I was only worried of the shame and the consequences my sin would bring if exposed. Though, if I could get away with it, I would gladly go right back to them 
because I loved sin. My conscience was full of guilt, but I had no ability to overcome it. By the grace of God, He gave me a godly grief which produced in me true repentance. I realized my sins were not merely mistakes, but a direct offense against the Holy God. If then, sin still ruled my body, I had no forgiveness of sins. I would have to pay the penalty of sin myself, which is the wrath of God. Therefore, truly and finally, I place my faith in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, as my Savior and as my Lord. For through His death on the cross, He paid the penalty of my sins and granted me forgiveness. And as Lord, He replaced sin as the ruler of my heart. For the first time in my life, I have a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. By His grace and His mercy, He has freed me from the bondage of sin and death. I no longer desire the sins that once ruled me, but I desire to obey the word of my Lord Jesus. I desire His word. I desire to pray. I desire to love my wife as Christ loves the church. I desire to instruct and disciple my kids in the ways of the Lord. I desire not to just be in the church, but to serve in the body of Christ. I desire in my inner being to grow in the grace and the knowledge of my Lord Jesus to the glory of God. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. David, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Do you believe that he lived and died to pay the penalty for your sins? And do you now place all of your hope and trust in him alone for your salvation? Yes. Based upon your profession of faith, I now baptize you, David Lopez, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, that's always encouraging uh, to see baptisms, to to hear how the Lord has worked uh, in the hearts and lives of